MSW Media. So, Renato, did this Fulton County grand juror completely screw everything up? <sighs> it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, so Asha, talk about comp. This is this thing with the Fulton County grand juror is like the definition of complicated. Um, okay, it's hard to understand. And and I will just tell you, it's funny because my original take on this when I first saw this, I'm like, okay, this is actually not complicated. This is a humongous problem, and. It's actually a little more complicated because of Georgia grand jury law, but it's not. It, I'm getting a lot. I got a lot of commentators on Twitter like, oh, no, it's, it's no big deal. Um, and unfortunately, um, it is kind of a big deal. OK, so can you explain first the Georgia law? Because I it's different than the secrecy laws for or, or the you know rules around federal grand juries. Correct, and and really also federal grand jury law in most states, as far as I as far as I know. Okay. So typically, grand jurors cannot share anything about what happens in the grand jury. That's just um, there are absolute uh, secrecy laws, and so if you share what happened before the grand jury, witnesses can share. But but okay. you know, if a prosecutor or a grand juror shares what happens in the grand jury, they can actually be charged with a crime, it's serious business. And so, um, are they ever? Yeah, you know, the Barry Bonds case is a very interesting one. That was one where um there were char- there there was a whole investigation because there were leaks from the Balco grand jury about his um you know, the steroids scandal with Barry Bonds and th- I think they put they actually put a reporter in prison for a period of time to try to get her or to reveal her sources is my recollection. But it was, I mean, they went really hard on that case because it was very problematic to them that somebody was revealing what was happening in the grand jury. And it did, by the, I mean, obviously have an impact on his life. And so but, be, before we get into the Fulton County, can you, can you maybe break down the policy reasons behind this? So ostensibly it's to protect the rights of the potentially accused, right? Right. Um, but in in that case, why then allow witnesses to talk, but not grand jurors? In other words, why not a blanket secrecy? In other words, what what is the secrecy trying to protect against? Because I think that will help illuminate the contrast with Georgia law and why this is problematic. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think the the, the, it's more complicated uh, to to go to something again when you're when you're when you're talking about trying to restrain somebody who's a witness to a crime from talking about it. I mean, there's a First Amendment issue there. So, um, you know, you've been assaulted and you want to tell the world about it, and you know, suddenly because you were asked about it in a grand jury, you're you're um, you are gagged forever from discussing you know your injuries and your the the horrific crime you suffered. So. That I think that's that that would be my uh, my uh, assumption of why 
you know, witnesses aren't, but that, that has been the rule for a long, long time. Whereas by contrast, I assume the grand juror is sort of a, a temporary civil servant, if you will. Um, in other words, they're, they're kind of acting at the request appointment of, of the court. And so they can be held to kind of a different standard. Yeah, I mean they're effectively. I mean they're all sworn in as a yeah. sort of they they are they are acting as an an officer of the court, Correct. and and yeah. the grand jury is part of the court system. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think you know it's you know it it, it is they're acting sort of as part of the system in which we uh, prosecute criminal cases. And so I think, um, you know, grand jurors uh, their ability to talk are heavily restricted, which is why. Um, you don't see it. You don't see this happen. And I think the instant reaction from pretty much every lawyer who saw this, who had anything to do with criminal law, was like, oh, my God, this is a disaster. This is a worse thing. She should keep her mouth shut. She's violating her oath, so on and so forth. I had all sorts of private chats with other people who had been prosecutors who were just absolutely livid about this. But under Georgia law, it's a little different. Um, if you, you know, and I kudos to the Georgia lawyers who are pointing this out. Her only oath was to not reveal deliberations. So anything other than deliberations, technically speaking, she could reveal. Um, And so then I guess that brings the question, and a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, are thinking this. Then so why is this a big deal? Why are we even talking about it this week? And I will tell you that most of the commenters on Twitter were that way. They're like, you know, Mariotti, you're making something out of nothing. She could totally do this. It was super okay. And, you know, the reality of the situation is is more complicated than that because the law is not as black and white as a lot of uh, folks think it is. In other words, yes, it's true that um, she had the right to say these things. However, I mean, I would say a couple, there's going to be a couple obvious consequences. One is there's going to be a whole slew of motions by the defense raising this issue, they're going to fail, like very likely going to fail, and so then you're you're going to say, okay, so what's the difference? I mean, first of all, that already is like a, a cost and a distraction. So, but what is the what are these motions going to be based on? So you said that she's allowed to talk about anything except for the deliberations. Now, I didn't watch her full interviews. Um, I heard snippets of it. She seems starstruck. She's like, oh, you know, Lindsey Graham was so funny and nice and um, whatever. <laughs> like so. You know, I don't know how close she got to disclosing deliberations um, in in terms of violating the letter of the law. But I I'm assuming that these motions are not just going to be she disclosed deliberations are going to be about a potential uh, that that they were prejudicial to their client. Yeah, that's right. I mean. First of all, one thing I'll just say, and and you, I think you alluded to this, Asha. You, I think it's a good point to make, is that she comes off as somebody who is not very serious and is approaching this, I think, with the wrong considerations in mind. Like, oh, I might get to swear in Trump. I was totally hoping he would testify so I'd get to meet him. And like, oh my God, Rudy Giuliani was there. This is so cool. So there's there's that element to it, because I think and you may say, well, so what? And it's like, well, it creates a narrative. I mean, I'm just saying this to somebody who litigates cases all the time. It just it, it gives a picture to the judge. OK, there may be an issue with this process. In other words, we usually think of this process as like 
very routine and this is just how it goes. And yet every def defendants want to complain about it, but this is just how it works. And then it's like, you know, I could see some of this raising a judge's eyebrows. Now, the 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 stuff that's probably most problematic that she said is actually stuff that made her seem like really chummy with the prosecutors. You know, she had this one state. This is the the ice cream social. Yeah, or I mean, she talked about how the grand jurors attended an ice cream social at the prosecutor's office, and when she was swearing in a witness, she had like a teenage mutant ninja turtle ice cream ice pop. Yeah, ice cream pop or something. You know, those ones you got from the ice cream truck when you were a kid. So, I mean. You know, you may you may be like, so what? So she got an ice cream, you know, two dollar ice cream bar, or five, well, with inflation, maybe it's a five dollar ice cream bar nowadays. But you know, why does this matter? And and the answer is just, grand jurors are supposed to be while while they're there's it's this weird almost fiction that we have that they're distinct from the prosecutors. They are distinct from the prosecutors. I don't want to say that they aren't, but. Because the defense doesn't have a role in the grand jury process. They aren't presenting their arguments. They aren't presenting their evidence. They're not there. It's not adversarial. Yeah. And of course, the prosecutors get to know them over time. And of course, they, be, they identify more with that side. And that's why there's that joke about how they can indict a ham sandwich or whatever that right. people talk about. So, but nonetheless, I think what is going to happen is you're going to get these motions in the defense where they portray the whole process as flawed. These grand jurors are, you know, starstruck. They're approaching, they're trying, they're approaching their duties and they're going to claim that you can learn about her deliberations from her comments. Cause you could see that her perspective on the witnesses was all based on her prior prejudices regarding each of these people. And she's in bed with the prosecutor, so to speak. And she's basically, excited about these secrets and maybe making decisions because she wants to um you know have please the prosecutors yeah and potentially have some exciting news that she could share to get her 15 minutes of fame that's how they'll portray it i yeah. think that will fail um because there's not a lot of meat in the bones there it's just it's you know it's an ice cream cone and whatever but it's it's gonna set a bad picture for the, the for the for the prosecution in front of the judge you know, it, it, when I, I will say I, I litigate uh, cases against the Justice Department, I've tried cases on behalf of defendants against the Justice Department. I am always looking to knock them down a peg because and I want I usually I, I like uh, the last criminal trial I had against the DOJ was right before COVID. And um, and I won that trial. And part of the, what I did was I filed a motion that I knew was a complete loser just to get my entire narrative out in front of the judge to show him this is not your typical case. Like they usually indict these winners, but I'm going to show you this is actually a loser case and they indicted an innocent man. And here's why. And I knew I was going to lose the motion, but the point was to get him to see that he shouldn't give them all these breaks that he might otherwise give them to try to protect uh, 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 conviction of a conviction of a person who's obviously guilty. Here, you know, if I was the defense attorney in this case, which I'm not, and I have nothing to do with that, so just preempting the comments, um, you know, I, I would be trying to show all this to the judge just to color the judge's view, and I'd be talking about it at trial all over the... Even though I'm not supposed to, I would slip it in whenever I could because I can get away with doing that and find ways to insert that into, into the trial, even though that's not something you're supposed to do because that's just how defense attorneys try cases as they get this stuff in front of the jury. I think that's such an interesting point of... um kind of putting the judge in a psychological posture of wanting to counter any perception that the per 
that the prosecution has had an unfair advantage by in some ways kind of putting the feather on the scale in favor of the defendant like through the process um that that's really interesting i had not thought of that before but i could totally see how as you said the judge would say no i mean this isn't enough to you know dismiss these charges but then going forward a judge wants to be seen as being impartial and um kind of even the playing field, I guess, even if it's just a matter of perception. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is, you know, most criminal cases are like, ultimately, there's so much evidence. Like you got the guy on tape or they're caught with the drugs or they were caught running out of the bank with the money. And the people want to challenge them and raise all these legal issues and they have the right to do so, but it's a waste of everyone's time. And the judge is really often just focused on making sure that the record on appeal is clean. So she doesn't have to deal with this when, you know, uh, some issue over a second time. And but there are but judges do not want somebody railroaded who is either innocent or it's been overcharged or there's some serious issue with the prosecution. And so you have to kind of if you're a criminal defense attorney, you have to flag for the judge like, yeah, this is kind of a weird case and there's problems here and you really need to pay attention to this to treat it seriously. And judges know that the prosecution has a lot of advantages. And so, like you said, that you need to make sure the judge understands, like, you got to give me some breaks here because the you know they're doing they're doing something a little little off a little crazy here you need to watch this one really closely judge and they usually do and so i think you know that is what uh, fanny willis bought her you know unfortunately get bought herself here with this grand juror it's unfortunate i mean she didn't select this person she had no idea i'm sure what this person was going to do but i do think this grand juror complicated things and by the way like i said also created a narrative at trial in the same way that, like, I think the analogy I draw is like the struck and page texts where, you know, that had nothing to do with anything. I mean, that was like not going to that didn't influence Robert Mueller. He didn't care. These people were having an affair and whatever their BS texts were about. But it was a narrative that was not only used in the media by Trump, but you you could guarantee that if there was a criminal trial and Peter Strzok was a defendant, like it would have been a whole thing, right? Or a yeah. defendant, I'm sorry, a witness. He would have been a whole thing. And similarly, even if they weren't, they, it would just it'd been the sort of thing defense attorneys would have tried to insert into the trial improperly to um, to to show bias. And by the way, I've seen a lot of Twitter comments telling me like, oh, Prosecutors will just make a motion and that'll never happen. And it's like, oh, my sweet summer child. Like, if you think that's how the real world works of trials, like, oh, you just make motions and everyone complies and, you know, it's all super clean and legal. Like, that's not real trial uh, work, in my opinion. Um, and yeah. So whatever. And I think even outside of the courtroom, because, as you know, Renato, it's not it's not just that. The process is fair. It must be perceived as fair. I mean, the legitimacy of the rule of law is, you know, I think of it as, you know, it's like the dollar bill, right? Like people have to believe that it works. (laughs) Um, And I think that you're absolutely right that one of the very successful things that Trump has done is to be able to delegitimize and, and sow seeds of doubt in the justice system among the public. Um, and that erodes the faith of any outcome that comes out of that process. In fact, there's a Yale law professor, Tom Tyler, who talks about um, 
legitimacy in the criminal justice process. And he talks about this, that Mm. so much of it rests on people have to believe that the process is fair because that's how they will accept the outcome, even if it's something that they don't like. And when they don't believe that the process is fair, I mean, just look at the election, then they don't accept the outcome. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I I will just say that um, that I think Trump did a very masterful job of spreading disinformation during the whole Mueller investigation to suggest that that was all unfair. And there are many Republicans, probably a vast majority of Republicans who believe with believe that just because it was repeated a lot of times by that side. And I just see the same thing happening here. And I think the issue here um, is that, you know, frankly, while certainly, um, you know, Fannie Willis is, uh, frankly, I think, operating in a very careful and deliberate manner with regards to this investigation. She is an elected official and has a stake in, um, you know, how she's perceived by her electorate. And so she was already more vulnerable than a career prosecutor uh, to this sort of attack. So I just think it's going to uh, be very, uh, very substantial in this case. In terms of the bottom line, what I would say is that, you know, people are asking me, does this mean that the the prosecution's tanked and all of that work is gone? No, it doesn't mean that. But it's just it's an obstacle that the prosecution has to overcome. And I would It's another thing she's gonna have to deal with in what is already a very difficult and politically fraught and divisive prosecution should she choose to bring it yeah i always thought it was an uphill battle like the fulton county da's office trying to take on the former president of the united states in an unprecedented prosecution um potentially making very broad allegations and now she's got to take this on as well it's just it's it's hard it's it's trying to do it's trying to, to get a prosecution in hard mode so just quickly the last point what what do you think was going through her mind when she saw this? Do you think she threw things? Um, is she just livid? Like, I have the I have the feeling. I mean, I'm sure she was just profoundly disappointed because I, I will just say, as somebody watching this, I had a profound disappointment in it because I do care about um, the respect respecting the law, and I do think that you know we we want to try to preserve a system in which the public does have confidence in it. And yeah. I, I, so I actually was kind of horrified to see it myself. I can only imagine her reaction. Yeah. And just as a coda, um, I saw an article that said that at least some legislation had been introduced in Georgia to essentially make the law more analogous to other states and federal law in terms of grand juror secrecy. So it sounds like a lot of people found this very problematic. Yeah, very good idea, because the next person, I mean, it, it could be a mass murderer, right, who ends up just you get the wrong grand juror. And she's also, I think, setting a, a precedent that other grand jurors are like, oh, well, she got on TV all the time. Ooh, I'm going to I'm going to do the same thing. You know, it's just bad, a bad idea. So, Asha, what do you make of this decision by McCarthy to release all of the surveillance footage from January 6th to Tucker Carlson and his team and no one else? Um, wow. I don't even know where to start. Um, I mean, it's first of all, this is like all the surveillance footage we're talking about. I think it was something along the lines of 44,000 hours of security footage. Now. 
beyond, you know, what Tucker Carlson could, you know, how he would possibly, you know, actually <laughs> analyze all this. Um, let's first start with just the security problems, right? Having all of that security footage really offers a lot of information and intelligence to nefarious actors, right? Um, it, it shows where all the cameras are located, what the angles are. Um, you know, it reveals what was happening inside. How did security respond? Where were members of Congress take it? I mean, all of these things are revealed for someone who wants to improve what they did the second time around. Um, what did the 9-11 hijackers do before they, you know, flew planes into buildings? They went into security. They went into airports and, and tested security and went through, you know, um, the the checks and see if they could bring box cutters through. Like, this is what bad people do. This is what terrorists do. And basically, we've handed this over to someone who, P.S., actively supports domestic terrorists, right, to the point where he thinks that they're patriots and calls them that. Um the second thing is in terms of the propaganda aspect, this is literally coming on the heels of this Dominion voting system filing, which tells us something we already knew, but it tells us in black and white in a court filing that Fox News actively lies to its viewers and tells them what they want to hear. And so... I mean, it's pretty obvious what Tucker is going to do with this, right? What do his view, what do Fox News viewers want to hear about January 6th? That they were peaceful, that they were patriots, that they were let in by the police, that, you know, they were, um, that Ashley Babbitt was uh, unfairly uh, killed, um, all of this stuff. And so what I expect to see is that this footage is going to be very selectively edited into some you know, propaganda reel that's going to be put out. Um, so, I mean, that's my take on it, is that this is both a security problem and I think a legitimacy problem. And what happens is that it then really dilutes the impact of the very careful footage that I think the January 6th committee provided, which wasn't, as far as I can tell, mo like most of it was not security footage. Like most of it was like public mm -hmm. Um, footage. button cam things too from the cops right. or things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, what they want to do is muddy the waters, um, and potentially in advance of charges that might be brought for the violence on January 6th. Yeah. I, I, I really agree with the thrust of what you're saying. I mean, obviously Tucker Carlson is, you know, a propagandist. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I don't think anyone, even before the Dominion suit, I don't think anyone considered him a neutral purveyor of anything. And as you point out, I mean, there's just massive security issues here. And, and you know, McCarthy's explanation for why he did this is I had made a promise. I mean, this was, as far as I could tell, this was part of the secret handshake, uh, you know, deal that he made to get the speakership was that with co-conspirators <laughs> of January 6th. Right who want to have the footage out there for the reasons you say. They want to find, is there a cop who just stood there as people were coming in? I mean, I, sus I suspect if you go through the footage, you will find Capitol Police officers who are like, you know what, I don't want to get the crap beaten out of me by 200 people trying to get in through this door. I'm just going to stand there and let it happen. 
uh, to preserve their own life or safety or some other reason. And they'll, that could be taken out of context to suggest that, oh yeah, these, these people were totally invited. We actually wanted these people to like defecate in the house chamber or whatever. Um, right. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I initially thought is, and I'm, I'm, struggling to under, to think about how this would be framed. So maybe it's not a legal issue, but if there does seem to be sort of a, I don't know if it would be a first amendment issue, but an equal access issue, I I'm struggling to see how the government could provide or government official can provide all of that to one news organization. Yeah. And prohibit it from another. Like that seems really strange and it's not quite viewpoint discrimination, but in some ways it sort of is. I it's don't know. interesting. Yeah. I don't, uh, it's interesting. It's a sort of claim. I don't accept, I don't expect to get broad. I mean, I'm sure a lot of news organizations are upset about it. I mean, well, they are suing mm -hmm. for access. So I don't know. I'm not sure on what grounds, but. Well, um, the mere act of suing, I mean, there's another thing where there's the shades of gray thing that I hope our listeners understand. Have come to appreciate. Have come to appreciate <laughs> is that, you know, merely filing a lawsuit imposes costs on the other side and it forces the other side to reckon with the arguments and the issues. And so, you know, it, for a news organization, just merely saying, okay, we're going to file suit and we're going to grind you out and, and do this. It's like, okay, well, Whoever CBS News, they've got they've certainly got the money to hire lawyers, and if they're going to do that, uh, um, you know, uh, then I think the House has to pay attention. Um, what I will say is there has been some movement. I mean, uh, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene told reporters the other day that there supposedly is going to be a deal that McCarthy is going to make to provide this to other outlets and to sort of have some agreement regarding security. The cat may already be out of the bag regarding Tucker Carlson, but I think that there it must it must be the case that they thought there was some risk regarding, uh, like you said, regarding a suit. I don't know off the top of my head what the claims would be. So you know, you mentioned viewpoint discrimination. You might want to explain what that is. I think um, I, that doesn't seem quite right to me here, but I mean, it's possible. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't exactly fit. So basically. Um, you know, First Amendment jurisprudence is complicated, but among some of the basic um, doctrines is this idea that the government, you know, to the extent that it um, engages in any kind of restrictions on First Amendment activity, it can't just it can't discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. In other words, it can't allow some people to speak and other people to not speak based on the fact that some have a particular opinion and others have a different opinion. It has to be viewpoint neutral. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that was the first thing that came to mind, but I think you're right. Like, I'm not sure that this fits neatly into that, it, but it just seems in my gut problematic. Um, it is, you know, I mean, you can imagine, I guess, like, like I get, I mean, can Biden just say I only allow MSNBC reporters to come into the press room and come with me on, you know, Air Force One? Like they are the only ones who will have any kind of access. I, I suppose theoretically he could, maybe I don't know, but that seems like we would, we would intuitively find that weird and problematic. Yeah. I, and kind of, well, you remember when Jim Acosta had his 
credential revoked, right, by the Trump White yes. House. That was a big part of the argument that they ended up dropping that or losing that because he had a valid First Amendment argument there. He was basically being they were retaliating against him for taking a view contrary to the administration. So it's possible. I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, one thing I will say is the legislature, I think, here is exempt from FOIA. I don't think Congress members of Congress are subject to FOIA. So it's not like there's a FOIA sort of issue. Um, at least that's my under, brief understanding of FOIA uh, law. Somebody doesn't practice in that area. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I do think that there's clearly some sort of claim that that can be that can that can be made here. And, you know, lawyers, um, it's not going to surprise all of you that, you know, lawyers get paid a lot of money to think this stuff up and f- figure out figure out arguments to make. And as long as you have a good enough argument to get to court, um, that alone imposes a lot of costs and I just don't I if I'm Kevin if I'm Kevin McCarthy I don't really want to be litigating this for months and spending a ton of time and energy on dumping a bunch of security tapes to Tucker um but I do think it's unfortunate I mean I think one point you made that I think is important and worth reemphasizing is the security issues right and you know what this now means is that we may have to change where all the cameras are and build a whole new system for what we're going to do in the case of an attack and all sorts of other things. And we're doing all of this just because McCarthy cut a deal uh, with, as you put it, people who were involved in the January 6th, uh, at, you know, ma- matter themselves uh, who wanted, you know, provide a, promote disinformation to the public, basically. Yeah. And I think it's a real security risk. I mean, I we have no idea who Tucker Carlson might share this footage with ps and we we did in fact have people who have been convicted of seditious conspiracy which is in essentially you know trying to levy war against the united states so it's not just i think a hypothetical concern these are people who have already tried to attack the seat of government and we have someone who is sympathetic to and potentially connected to that movement um, now in possession of information that could be helpful to those designs. Yeah. I, I obviously concerning. I, I guess when I was kind of querying um, other lawyers about this and I was like, how can McCarthy do this? And the answer was, well, he can do anything he wants as a, the house speaker, but it sounds like Schumer also has the same, ability um but i i suspect that what they i suspect that democrats understanding the security issues have to think about the trade-off between that and being the ones responsible for releasing these tapes to other newest organizations my guess is they want mccarthy to just him to be the one who gets his hands dirty in doing any of this yeah schumer wrote like a, a pretty aggressive letter about it and condemned it and that sort of thing. So I, I agree. It also creates a false equivalence. Like whoever, whatever, let's just say that yeah. you know, Schumer gives it to all the other media, then it's going to buy into the conservative um, uh, idea that, oh, all the media are biased in favor of the Democrats yeah. when all all Schumer would really be doing is kind of evening the playing field amongst all of the, the news organizations. So yeah, um, what, what an unfortunate situation. But I, I have to say, it's sort of emblematic of how unserious uh, House Republicans are. I mean, I, I've, you know, there was a tweet recently where this House Republicans like, oh, we've changed everything and done all this stuff and ama- you know, this amazing job we've done since we've taken over. 
they haven't passed a single bill. They haven't done anything, yeah. uh, as far as I can tell. Um, but yet, you know, it's all this sort of clown show stuff. Uh, like give you know, give all of our security tapes to a propagandist or whatever. So, Hasha, you know, last week we talked a little bit about the controversy with the Nikki Haley uh, uh, dust up. And, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about that really struck me is, you know, I, I, I'm going to confess that I don't usually go through the comments on your tweets. I just I let read your tweets. I don't know if I read every random person who responds. And I did started doing it during that controversy. And it was amazing to me how many creeps that you have responding to your tweets and really just saying all sorts of things about you and your appearance. Uh, some of them do it on our own YouTube channel too. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, I'm assuming this isn't new uh, and I'm just curious, you know, how you deal with that and what that, what that's like for you. Were they stalker creeps or were they harassing creeps? And I'm asking because I don't always see all of those, at least on Twitter, because I have my settings, um, adjusted so i only see comments from people who follow me so often swarm trolls like don't show up for me when i see like the notifications and, and things like that um that's already a consequence though because i don't do that i don't need to i mean there are people who say mean things about me that's par for the course i have people try to say what they think are threatening things and not very scared of them. Right. But I'm, I'm, I'm willing to listen to, or willing to see the comments from other people because they're not bothering me as much as I suspect these people bother you. I don't, it was like all these people like, Oh, you're so beautiful. And you know, all this sort of BS. I, I just, I'm sure that's got to get old. Um, yeah, it gets old. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I just, I just ignore it really. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's only, there's only been a couple of instances where it's kind of crossed a threshold to become alarming. Like, you know, I had one person who got to be kind of so excessive, both on Twitter and then on Instagram and DMing me on Instagram, that I blocked him. Then he got really angry that I blocked him. So he started emailing me. And at that point, I had to contact you know, Yale security. Cause I was like, I don't know what this guy's going to do. It's going to show up at my house mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, so, um, and that's on kind of the stalker side. Um, that, then there's, you know, there's the other side, right. Which is like, you know, I remember there was a clip a couple of weeks ago. Um, this is when I was sick. Uh, and I showed up in my sweatshirt and whatever. And somebody is like, Oh, look at the bags under her eyes. And there's always, you know, comments mm. about your nose comments about your hair. Um, you know, recently in response in the Nikki Haley thing, like some account had a screen grab of me and had like, frozen it in some like weird distorted facial expression and then i had like all these guys mm. like making fun of how i look um and whatever like so right. so that's all there i guess that doesn't bother me because i mean for better or worse that's just not like a point of insecurity for me so i'm just like all right <laughs> like I, I wouldn't give you the time Whatever. of day anyway so you know thank you mm -hmm. leave me alone um 
But I think it is something that women have to deal with. Like comments about their appearance are pervasive. Even when I started doing TV, I would get, you know, I would get people emailing me telling me I shouldn't be wearing sleeveless things or, you know, you're showing too much cleavage. Like, and I'm like, why are you looking at like, I don't even know. Like there was just like a lot of weird Weird. stuff. Um, And I think it is something that men just don't have to think about or, or deal with. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think I do. I mean, I occasionally get people comment on my parents. um, Some of them have strong opinions about certain things. Um, I've gotten people saying that I, you know, uh, certain things I wear are stupid looking. I've had a lot of people say I should shave my beard or this or that, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but it's it's so much less than you. I have had the creepy stalker types as well, but it's just it, – it, I think there's a couple of things. One is there's, I'm sure – I was just – just from judging from the comments on one of your tweets that I looked at randomly, I think it's a lot less than what you get. But also – I'm not scared of those people. You know, in other words, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I like was you're scared. You're not worried that they're going to show up at your door and you don't right, need it. And attack right. you. Right. Exactly. Like there was a woman who was tremendously, uh, unbelievably stalkier, stalking and harassing me on all sorts of mediums all over the place. But I, I was just like some, some crazy person from Washington state, like whatever, like, you know, come at me, you know, I mean, do what you're going to do. I, I've like, I was concerned when criminals who like, there was a guy who escaped from prison who wanted to kill me. I'm not concerned about like, you know, some random bozo off the internet, you know, people in their internet words. Yeah. I mean, and it can feel physically threatening. Like I said, I did have to call security um, once and just get their advice on what to do. And they had me put an app on my phone and keep tabs and mm. save all the emails and things like that. But it reminds me of this saying that I've seen a few times, which is something along the lines of men's greatest fear is that a woman will humiliate them. Mm -hmm. And a woman's greater fear, greatest fear is that a man will kill them. And it's sort of like this kind of trying to highlight the asymmetry between, you know, what, what is the extreme consequence of, you know, these different, um, you know, approaches, I guess, or, or responses by unhinged people. <laughs> yeah. And I just think, I think that's something that, you know, men should think more about. I, I you know, I think that particularly, um, I don't know what people think they're accomplishing with these comments that they're making, but I just, it's not only really weird and inappropriate, but it's just, you, you're uh, you're you're actually making yourself look look like a fool and potentially hurting someone else. I just don't I, I don't understand it. But I want to get your comment on it because I was like it was so taken by that. I was like, wow, there's a lot more of this than I thought. Like this happens must happen every day to her. Yeah, and it's really it is. I think I pay less attention to the stocky stuff. I maybe I don't see them. I feel like my followers kind of know to be respectful. I kind of. I have really, I have really good loyal followers on Twitter, and um, I, I haven't seen anything go too far. Though maybe they're just they're being screened out. Um, I do think that there is, you know, definitely a trolling aspect um, to women based on physical experience, physical appearance. M-S-W Media. Hi, 
Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeyal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off.